God's presence, God's people, God's purpose, God's plan. These have always been the essential ingredients of the church. We find a recording of Jesus' birth, life, death, and resurrection in the Gospel of Luke. That letter was the first of a two-part work, the second being the Book of Acts. In this letter, Luke recalls Jesus' ascension and commission, the spread of the Gospels, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit through the early church. In the past, God's presence was with His people in one place at one time. But after God outpoured His promised Holy Spirit at Pentecost, the power to do incredible things filled those who would receive it and overflowed to those around them. With this new Holy Spirit power, the church began to explode, stirring among thousands as the message grew and spread, unhindered. The mission of the church has been made clear by Jesus Himself. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And now, more than 2,000 years later, God's presence is still being unleashed among God's people. And we are part of God's continued purpose and God's continued plan as the Holy Spirit moves in and through us. I promise I am not texting my friends. I am chatting in real time with our online campus and I'm actually asking them if I look short on TV. They, uh, they've not responded yet. Be kind online. Uh, it, it's pretty cool actually because right now attending church with you, uh, we've got Jack, Laura, the Gregories, Brenda, Janine, Caleb, Linda, Callie, Larry, Corey, the Cox family, and Debbie, all attending our online campus with you in Bellingham and in Skagit. And as you know, one of the incredible things about the online campus is there are no geographic limitations. It means what's happening here in Bellingham is connected to Mark and Karen watching on Lake McMurray right now. And to Bruce, who's watching on his porch enjoying the shade in Phoenix, Arizona right now. And what we're doing here connects around the country. In fact, to Rafa and all those gathered uh, in Belize watching our online campus. In fact, this last week, I actually got to connect uh, with our friends in Belize via Zoom. This is what it looked like. I was a little bit excited, obviously. But uh, this was Tuesday night, and this is Chris. He attends our online campus, and he leads a men's community group, and that's all of them there in Belize, about seven of them around the table. It was incredible to connect with them. And this is a big deal, this online campus, because it was five years ago last weekend that Cornwall Church planted a flag in the ground and said, we are making a decision to go online, believing that what, what God was doing in here could have kingdom impact out there. And so we began live streaming our services and now formally with an online campus. Make no mistake, Cornwall Church God is up to something here in Whatcom County and in Skagit County, and now up and down I-5 and around our state and around our nation and even around the world, 47 states, three countries check into Cornwall Church online on any given weekend. And we, who call Cornwall Church home, we get to be a small part in that story that God is writing as he brings people to Cornwall Church online to find a place to belong, to connect, 
and to grow deeper with their relationship with Jesus. Cornwall Church is in Bellingham. It is in Skagit, and now, formally, it is online. Pretty cool, right? Come on! Online, we love you. Well, I am excited to be here. I looked at the calendar this week and realized it is already mid-July, and so you or your kids have likely said one of two summertime phrases. One, I'm bored, or two, it's too hot. Likely one of the two. I, I love summertime. It's great for sleeping in and staying up late and camping and campfires and barbecues and vacation. We love summertime vacation. Shauna, my wife, and I, we actually just booked a vacation uh, for our family. And I don't know about you, but for us, when we're booking a trip, we visit several travel websites, and one of them is Expedia. Now, no, this is not a paid commercial announcement for Expedia yet, even though I love Expedia.com for all my travel needs. <laughs> Expedia.com, one of the travel resources we use, and, and Expedia and all the travel websites do the exact same thing. They strategically show you the best of what you're looking for. Oh, you're looking for a flight. Here is the best, most direct flight. Oh, you're looking for a car. Here's the most fuel-efficient, shiniest, newest model car. You're looking for a hotel. Here is the best, highly desired, highly rated hotel. Now, I love my family, but time after time, they consistently fall into this trap, specifically when it comes to hotels. They look at the listings and say, Dad, show us, show us the pool. My wife, is there a view? Show us the room. And 10 times out of 10, the, the listing does not disappoint. The pool looks clean and inviting. The room is immaculate and spacious, and that view always unobstructed. But I am the realist in our family, so I immediately click down the page to reviews. You see, I don't want to know what the hotel wants me to know. I want to know what the travelers last weekend want me to know. Now, why on earth am I telling you this? I believe this idea can translate to our faith journey. Think for a second to when you and Jesus first met, when you decided to give over your life to Christ. Now, maybe that decision happened in church or in a community group or on a retreat or maybe at a summer camp, a young life, young, a youth group. Maybe it was in the privacy of, of your bedroom. Regardless of where, it's very likely someone or some people spoke into you creating a relationship with Jesus. They likely told you that, that a relationship with Christ will change your life, that Jesus will love you unconditionally. He'll provide you unlimited wisdom. He'll pour out forgiveness over and over. He'll comfort, provide protection, and guide you, and he has a story written just for you. And all rightfully so, because all of that is true. And Jesus will guide your path, and sometimes he'll redirect you even when you don't want him to. Jesus will provide comfort for you, and sometimes he'll shove you into spaces of extreme discomfort. Jesus will love you unconditionally, and at the same time, he will call you to love the unlovable. And Jesus will hear every prayer you say, and sometimes his response back will be, 
silence. I fear, I wonder, if we are like Expedia. We're quick to share the good, the highlights, what's great about a relationship with Jesus without clicking over to page two. Because on page two, it's where things get kind of messy. It's where we discover that opposition is in the fine print. Opposition in our faith is in the fine print. And understanding that truth means we understand that that is non-negotiable. It's not optional. It is included with your membership in the family of God. You see, we don't get to enjoy the blessing of God's love and forgiveness and faithfulness over here and leave the opposition we might face to our faith over here. As Pastor Kip might say, if you get anything from this message, get this, you will face opposition if you follow Jesus. Now, I know this is not a real pick-me-up way to start the message. So let me offer this encouragement This opposition I'm speaking of, this persecution we're talking about, it is nothing new. It's nothing new. What has been said to you has been said before. What's been mocked about your faith has been mocked before. What's been questioned has been questioned before. It's classic Ecclesiastes 1.9. What has been will be again. What's been done will be done again. Why? There is nothing new under the sun. In other words, whatever you have faced, you will face again. There is nothing new. Paul would know this. Paul, who is Saul, who we'll hear about next week. But in our case, he's Paul because he's writing to Timothy. Anyway, he would write this, encouragement. Timothy, you know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, my faith, patience, love, and endurance. Timothy, you know this about me. It's in my DNA. And because of that, he goes on. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ, Jesus, will be persecuted. Key words, everyone, no one's exempt, will what? Will be persecuted. Timothy knew this, either having seen Paul be persecuted, opposed firsthand, or hearing about it secondhand. But Paul is making a case of certainty. He's saying, because of this, my life my love, my faith, my purpose, the race I run, because of this, then I can expect this. Persecution, opposition, challenges, hurdles, setbacks, valleys. And he's saying, hey, guess what? Timothy, you too can expect the same. He says, you will be. Opposition is part of a faith with Jesus. Speaking of Jesus, there's no better example than Jesus. We see in the Gospel of John, it's recorded that he shares this encouragement to his disciples. He says this, If the world hates you, keep in mind, it hated me first. This isn't Jesus hanging around the guys going, Oh yeah, you think think the world hates you? Guess what? They hated me more. This is a non-competitive statement. It's actually the opposite He's trying to affirm to them, long after I'm gone from you physically, be mindful of this. When the world turns on you, when the world questions you, when the world hates you, know they opposed me first. I know what it feels like. I know how you'll feel. I'm with you. I'm in the boat. That's an encouragement. 
because it reminds us opposition is part of the faith journey with Jesus. And while we are in good company, Paul, Jesus, it still makes this statement very true. Following Jesus isn't always easy. Sure, there are times when following Jesus is easy. Following Jesus, it's great. But there are times where it's not easy. There's countless reasons why a relationship with Jesus is amazingly unparalleled. Still doesn't make it easy. I love what Max Licato says. He says it this way. God never said the journey would be easy, but he did say the arrival would be worthwhile. If, you run, if you've run a, an Ironman before, I've got a friend who trained long and hard for an Ironman. He would say, the road to the Ironman is not easy, but crossing that finish line, the arrival to the finish line, worthwhile. Herein lies the challenge. I fear, I wonder, if we don't share this part of our faith. I fear, I wonder, if we don't share that a life in Christ will have opposition. There will be storms. There will be valley moments. In fact, a Barna study asked mature Christ followers, why not? Why didn't you share this when sharing your faith with others? Some of the top responses included, I feel like it would be a downer. Or someone else, I felt like it would scare someone away from making a decision to follow Christ. Barna then turned around and asked a, a group of new Christians, people that had just made the decision to follow Jesus, and asked them if they would want to have known about the opposition they might face as a follower of Christ. Overwhelmingly, they said, Yes. Their answers included, it would have better prepared me. It would have given me the full picture. It would have helped me hold tighter to Jesus or this. It would have made me less unshakable as a new Christian. Last week, Pastor Kip referenced Pastor Chris Brown when he said, great obedience brings great opposition. I don't know about you, but I underlined it, circled it, put stars next to it, because that is a beautiful reminder of what comes with following Jesus. Great obedience brings great opposition. I mean, on its own, you're not going to get many people to sign up for that. But through the grid of knowing it's part of a relationship with Jesus, makes it easier to understand and accept and apply. We're actually going to see this in our text Today, as we continue to walk through this summer, fall series on walking through the book of Acts, and today we hit a milestone moment. It is a big moment of high intensity, a little bit of drama, and some faith in action in the face of opposition. And the guy, the center of it all, a man named Stephen, and it would be how he lived and how he dies that he would help catapult the early Christian church. Now, to appreciate this moment, first we have to answer the question, who was Stephen? Now, in the early Christian church, this is a couple of years after Jesus' crucifixion, his resurrection, there were Christians complaining. They had a specific complaint that we know of that widows were not being taken care of, that in a daily distribution of food, there were some being left out. Those were widows. 
Now, if you grew up in church, you probably had some sort of leadership organizational chart, likely the senior pastor up top, maybe some associate pastors next, then elders, and then deacons. And deacons in this early church became very critical. They were the worker bees of the church. They were a necessity. They were appointed to specifically watch over the sharing of food, but also handle everyday ministerial duties. Our guy Stephen was one of those deacons. Feeding the widows, interacting with the widows, that gave him a chance for ministry, just like the apostles were doing. Now, little is known about Stephen up until this point when he was ordained as a deacon, but we do know this. Stephen stood out. He stood out in action. As Acts 6, 8 records, Stephen was a man full of God's grace and power, doing wonders and miraculous signs among the people. He stood out in action and he stood out in words because Stephen, we know, was a very vocal guy pushing Jesus and the gospel. And that is what gets him in trouble. You see, one day Stephen is, encounters this group who are pretty upset with him. They're coming into the conversation trying to outsmart, outwit uh, Stephen and derail his efforts. And when they realize their efforts are not working, they get angry and attempt to retaliate against him. They begin spreading lies about him, rumors about him, blaspheming God, and they get the community stirred up. But you heard what Stephen did. Have you heard what Stephen said? And this makes people upset. The religious then seize him, drag him, take him before the high council. They make up some ridiculous charges against him. I, I mean, think about his day. He starts the day maybe with a morning devo, goes to visit some widows, share some time with them. That afternoon, he's being drugged in front of the Sanhedrin. And yet Stephen, I don't think, was surprised or maybe worried. You see, his envelope-pushing, revolutionary-for-the-time message now found him before the Sanhedrin, P.S., the same group that would condemn Jesus to death. And this is where we pick up the story. Acts 7 54 reads this. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, all the, the rumors and blasphemy and untruth, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. Notice they, they weren't just miffed. They weren't just irritated. They weren't just upset. They were angry. Their fury caused them to gnash their teeth, as gross as you think it sounds. They gnashed their teeth, and not just that, at him. They wanted him to know, through this outward expression, how ticked off they were. Why so mad? What were they so upset about? Well, as devout Jews, they had great issue. They wanted to challenge Stephen's claim that Jesus was the much-awaited Messiah because it shattered their long-held belief. Christianity was now something entirely new. It was changing. It was different. It was a new covenant from God, replacing the old. This is where the plot thickens. Because as Stephen stands before the Sanhedrin, he has an opportunity, an opportunity for defense, to back away from what he had been preaching about Jesus, to explain, to defend. And what does Stephen do? He preaches a sermon. 
Now, I know something about preparing a defense. It was several years ago, I had Alyssa and Dylan in the car with me. Come to think of it, I was leaving a Cornwall church event, and I got caught speeding. Now, this has only happened like once, twice, three, four, five, that one time. Okay, just a couple of times I've caught, been caught speeding. And I remember this time because we were, as I said, leaving this Cornwall church go and be event, and we're driving away and talking about it. And all of a sudden, in my rearview mirror, I see the red and the blue. I'm like, oh boy. And so I pull over, and, and I'm starting to gather all the things I know I'm going to be asked for. Roll down the window. You know, do you know why I pulled you over? Yes, officer, I was speeding. Yes, you were. Uh, hand him the information. He comes back right quick, super kind, and says, yes, you were speeding. Here's your ticket. Have a nice day. I'm like, okay. And so I drive away, and the kids are giggling, and I ground them. No, I'm kidding. I didn't do that. But if you've ever uh, received a ticket, not that you have, I know this is just me, but if you've ever received a ticket, you know there's a couple of options. Like, you know, option one is, I'm guilty, here's the check. And then option two is like, I am not guilty, you know, I'll see you in court. And then option three is, okay, I'm guilty, but let me explain. So I chose that option. Like the, I'm guilty, let me explain. And so in the weeks leading up to my court date, I went like all law and order on this. Like I went out to the crime scene. I'm taking pictures. I'm like, I got to be ready for this defense. And so I get to the courthouse, the Skagit County Courthouse, and I arrive early and I'm all dressed up and I'm sitting in the waiting area. And then the, the police officer, bailiff, whatever, says, you know, okay, court case number 35021, Byron Mengel. Yeah, okay, B Brian Mengel, yeah, that's me. And so I come up to the thing, and, and I remember the, the judge, who is super kind, says, I, I see you were speeding. I also see this is not your first time. I'm like, cool, thanks, judge. And um, I said, but here's, let me explain, let me explain. And so I pull out from my file, I've got several things, and I say, let me show you this picture. The tr there's a tree that had overgrown in front of the speed limit sign. How was I even supposed to know? And... That kind of worked. She lowered the ticket but said, sir, you, you should know that, that was, you were going too fast. I said, okay, I appreciate that. The bottom line is I went into that court case ready with a defense. I prepared because I had one chance, one moment to back away from what I was doing or what I had done to defend myself. Stephen had that same opportunity, that one chance to back away. And what does he do? The opposite. In fact, if anything, Stephen's words were an indictment to the charges made against him. He presented no defense of himself at all. Acts 7 continues. It says this, But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, put a pin in that, looked to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He says, Look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, this sermon is the longest recorded sermon in the book of Acts. Stephen's sermon is twice as long as Peter's sermon in Acts 2 at Pentecost. Like our beloved Pastor Bob, Stephen went long. But also like Bob, it was jam-packed with goodness, with truth, with a summation of Scripture, with quotations from the Old Testament. And after he presents this lengthy sermon, this message, what does he do? He looks to heaven and sees this vision, this vision of Jesus standing there at the right hand of God. 
As a side note, the same vision that Paul would have and record to the church at Ephesus and John would have as recorded in Revelation. He wraps up this, this impassioned sermon, and it would be his last. He knew the stakes were high, but Stephen, confident in who he was because of whose he was, he knew that this message mattered. This message to the Sanhedrin and all those bystanders would be a defense of his faith, not himself. Now remember, the audience is already all fired up. And now Stephen is proclaiming this vision. I see Jesus. This, well, they completely lose it. It goes on to say this. At this, at the conclusion the icy Jesus moment. They covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices. They all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Now, most scholars agree the yelling, the ear covering was likely those in the Sanhedrin because they actually didn't have authorization to, uh, to go and say, stone him. So we think this is actually more like a, a crazy mob mentality that drug him away to begin the stoning process. Now, a word on stoning. I'm going to spare you the details, but let's just say stoning was a horrific way to go. This form of capital punishment is not complex. It involves large stones. This is not like pebbles or river rock in your landscaping. Uh, stones that had some serious weight to them and likely jagged edges. First, the stones that were thrown at close range would suddenly start piercing the skin. It would cause cuts and then bleeding and then internal bleeding. And eventually, after some time, death by blunt force trauma. Pretty horrific way to go. Also, as this is happening, we get a preview of an important guy who happens to be watching all of this happen. A guy who's going to be critical in the next couple of weeks. A guy who's got a front row seat to the stoning of Stephen. We see this. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats down at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul of Tarsus, later Apostle Paul, who would bring great heinous persecution and fiery opposition to Christians everywhere would eventually become the biggest proponent of the faith and would have an incredible passion, the same passion as the guy who's being stoned at his feet. More on him next week with Pastor Bob. So Stephen, being stoned to death, has two more things to say. The first is this. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. This is an affirmation of something we all believe. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And perhaps that even sounds familiar. More on that in a second. Then he fell to his knees and he cries out. This is it. Final words. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. After saying this, when he said this, he fell asleep. Stephen was not only an incredible bearer of Christ and the gospel and his message, his very death parallels Jesus' death on the cross. 
even down to his phraseology. Just as Jesus was asking the same as he was on the cross, really the difference is the audience. As Jesus said these things, he was talking to his dad, talking to God. As Stephen's saying these things, he's talking directly to Jesus, who fully understood what enduring suffering was like. As Stephen dies, he doesn't die in vain. In fact, very much the opposite. God would use Stephen to expand the church. God would use Stephen to expand the church. This is when things get exciting. Because as as every single time that Jesus is involved in the story, he makes good come from evil. We know that in all things, God works together for the good. The truth is that Stephen's execution began the spread of Christianity. What seemed at first like tragedy for the church was very much for the church, for its growth, a part of God's great master plan. You see, Stephen's death forced Christians to go. Like, we got to pack up and get out of here. And so they did. They left here and started to go, to spread. They went there and 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 there. Suddenly the church was everywhere. As a result, the church expanded, exploded far and wide. This was a game changer because for the first time, the world saw that the message of Jesus was worth dying for. God used this tragedy for the church to be strengthened and empowered and emboldened. And the message and the church would catch on fire. So how does this happen? How does God use the passing of Stephen in this high-intensity moment? How does he move it from triumph to tragedy, from tragedy to triumph? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is and was involved. The Holy Spirit is and was at work. Stephen was described as a man who was both full of wisdom and the Spirit, and a little bit later, described as a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. He was a bold evangelist, not afraid to defend the gospel despite dangerous opposition. Why? That courage was fueled by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit enables you and I to do things we might not think we can do. I love how Dan Wolf of Faith Life describes this. He says, The same Holy Spirit that gave a boldness and courage to Stephen in his hour of death is the same Holy Spirit that gives you a boldness and a courage in your life. What a cool comparison. The same Holy Spirit then is giving you a boldness and courage today. Opposition to your faith will be a reality. We certainly pray and hope it is not to the extent of Stephen's story, but we, Christ followers, ought to be ready for whatever, whenever, by whomever. Now, I'm a really practical pastor, so I, if I hear this, I want to know what's next. How do I take this from Sunday into Monday? And I think this is the challenge. It's know your why. Know your why. 
And not just a mental knowing of why. It has to be here. You have to know your why here. It's a gnosko kind of knowing. The Greek word gnosko simply means to know deeply. It's not a casual knowing. It is a passionate knowing. It's critical for a Christ follower to know the why. Why do you follow Jesus? You see, knowing your why casually will get you in trouble because when you face opposition, you will fall like a deck of cards. But knowing your why passionately, that's different. You'll be ready to engage and stand up for your faith and passionately share your why and your story. You see, Stephen knew his why. And don't misunderstand. Knowing your why does not mean you have to have a theological degree or an apologetics class or one-on-one sessions with Pastor Bob. Your why is in part fueled by your story. And here's the great thing. No one can dispute your story. No one can dispute your story. At some point in your life, you've probably heard that you should have a three-minute elevator speech ready. P.S., what elevator on the planet takes three minutes to ride? I digress. You're supposed to have a three-minute elevator speech ready so that in the off chance you find yourself in an elevator with your company's CEO or general manager, you've got those three minutes to pitch big ideas or your placement in the company or ask for a raise or a new vision for your business. I would say the same idea translates here. The same principle can be applied to your faith. First Peter reminds us quite clearly, always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks for the reason for the hope you have. Always, anytime, be prepared for what? To give an answer to whom? Anyone that asks, asks about what? The hope that I have. Be prepared with your why and include your story because no one can oppose your story. Jesus didn't show up like that. Yeah, right, Jesus answered that prayer. Jesus did that for you. Yeah, I don't believe it. Well, it's true, and I know. No one can dispute your story. You see, those that will oppose you, and they will, those that oppose you, they can go blue in the face talking about uh, the church or beliefs or apologetics or your faith or this or that, but no one can oppose your story what Jesus has done for you. So be sure to share the blessings. What's so great about your faith and your journey with Jesus? But don't just show the room with the unobstructed view. Show the challenges too. Tell about the valleys. Get into the ugly details. I think our faith becomes very real and very tangible and really relatable when we become transparent. So church, embrace opposition. Know that it's coming and know that God through his Holy Spirit will be there when you share your why and you share your story. And when opposition comes your way, when you have your Stephen-like moments, then think ABC. This is how we'll close. ABC, be assured, bold, and courageous. When you face that moment of opposition for the faith in Jesus that you've got, 
A, be assured. Be assured that many have gone before you. They've endured the persecution that you are facing. They have had opposition for their faith like you. Physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally, you are not alone. And be assured the Holy Spirit is with you. Then B, be bold. It's been said that to be bold takes a step. So step into those conversations. Don't shy away from tension. We are not called to sit comfortably in our faith on the sideline. We are called to stand up and speak with a boldness. How might God use your obedience to opposition when we are bold? And then last, C, be courageous. As Pastor Kip mentioned, know who you are because of whose you are. And then courageously tell your story. Share your why. Be strong, courageous, not afraid, not discouraged. Why? Joshua 1.9 tells us God will be with you wherever you go. Pastor Francis Chan says this, God doesn't call us to be comfortable. Instead, he calls us to trust him so completely that we are unafraid to put ourselves in situations where we will be in trouble if he doesn't come through. Stephen knew opposition's part of the faith. Jesus knew opposition is part of the faith. Saul would discover later opposition is part of the faith. So walk in your faith journey with eyes wide open, knowing that opposition and resistance and persecution and hurdles and valleys and clouds and storms are inevitable. They're going to intersect with your life. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Perhaps it's in your break room with your coworker this week. Perhaps it's on the sideline of your child's sports team this week, in the cul-de-sac with a neighbor, maybe in your living room with a family member this week. Look, nobody said following Jesus was easy. And nobody said enduring opposition for following Jesus was easy. But with assurance, boldness, courage, and an active Holy Spirit, we can be confident that always, always, it's going to be worth it.